Brand new series starts today, all about the gospel of Mark, King of Kings. Are you ready? If you have uh, been here for a while, you know that we have been in an Old Testament book for a long time, Isaiah, and now we're beginning this brand new series. It is a great Sunday to be here, and you may not have known this, and some of you are guests for the baby dedication, but by coming to the beginning of a series, you have obligated and committed yourself for the rest of the series. You have to be here, Ron. We're more than happy to have you as, you as we go through the Gospel of Mark together. Mark, uh, for those of you brand new to the Bible, uh, Mark is one of the Gospels. And the New Testament begins with four men that wrote the story of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is the second in that order, but it was hottest off the press. Uh, in other words, it was the first one written. After the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, uh, church tradition tells us that it was none other than the Apostle Peter who told Mark what it was like to live with Jesus and to minister with Jesus and to be one of those disciples. Mark took down everything Peter told him and crafted his gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He writes this gospel. Uh, so much to like about, uh, enjoy about Mark. It's the shortest. He uses great economy of language. Uh, one thing you may love about Mark, no big sermons in Mark. Yeah, uh, you want the Sermon on the Mount? That's Matthew. You want uh, the Sermon on the Plain? That's Luke. You want the Olivet Discourse? That's John. Mark, it's, if you've ever said actions speak louder than words, Mark is your book. It's all about the actions. It's about what Jesus came to do. The whole book is like frenetic with this energy. Immediately Jesus went here and then Jesus went here and he lays this out. So here we go. A brand new series that is not Isaiah. I know, I, listen, I loved Isaiah, don't get me wrong, uh, but we were in Isaiah for a long time, and I have been looking forward to a New Testament gospel. So let's begin at the beginning. Here we go, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles. Turn on your Bible app to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Verse will also be up here on the screen. You ready? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Woo! Yes and amen. A New Testament book. That is no longer Isaiah. Woohoo! Verse 2. As it is written in. You gotta be kidding me. As it is written in Isaiah. Here we are. We're not even two verses in, and we're already back in Isaiah. The prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. What's my point? When I say, whew, I'm glad to be done with the Old Testament, you realize I'm kidding. There's no such thing as done with the Old Testament. The Bible's one book. And it's not as if there's Old Testament, we don't need that anymore, and now there's New Testament. No, 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 no. Look at what this verse is saying. That Jesus didn't come out of, out of nowhere. If you read the Old Testament, the, every page of the Old Testament whispers his name. And every page of the New Testament tells us how Jesus fulfilled all the ancient scriptures. It's one God, one story of redemption. What Mark is saying right here, what he's telling us is, hey, Jesus didn't just come out of nowhere. Jesus of Nazareth didn't just appear, this Messiah, Son of God. This, this story isn't just out of the blue. It's out of the blueprint. It's out of the plan. It's out of the foreordained heart of God. It's all one story. So he's saying it's not a new thing. Here he goes. And in this, uh, uh, you, you'll see he came in this, these first few 
chapters, how God came, he saw, he conquered. Here we go, he came. Go back to verse 1 and let's dive deep. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, verse 1 says. That's actually not just the first verse. That's the title of the whole gospel. That's the headline. When Mark says, I want to tell about Jesus, this is the headline that tells us everything we need to know, uh, the headline of the whole book. Notice the key terms, gospel, Christ, and Son of God. You can make a whole sermon about just that verse. I won't. But the gospel, Christ, and Son of God. Uh, let's start with, with gospel. Understand uh, these words. Gospel. Uh, when, when you hear the word gospel, you probably think of it in a religious context, right? If, I mean, if, if we surveyed just a man on the street, hey, when you hear gospel, what do you think of? Most folks say, oh, yeah, yeah, like preach the gospel or the churches tell the gospel. Or you might think of it as a music genre, right? That's gospel music. Or down here, southern gospel music, right? It's, yeah, yeah, music gospel. When Mark wrote it, gospel is not a, it had no religious connotation. It was a political designation. Gospels would go out. These gospels were royal announcements, usually about something some Roman emperor had done on your behalf. So for example, um, some Roman general would win some war, right? We're fighting the Visigoths or whoever. And this general would win, and so they would send a gospelist, the Greek word was euangelion, so they would send an euangelionist, an evangelist, you hear that word in there, to go around to the various provinces and announce, because General Claudius or whoever, Octavius, has won this great battle against this vicious group of evil people, you will now be free and you won't be their slaves. Isn't this great news? Because of this great battle that was won, you are going to be okay. This was great news. It was a royal announcement. In 9 BC, nine years before Christ, there was a gospel that begins the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. And it goes on to tell the birth and coronation of Augustus. And he sent it out to all the kingdom. And he said, because of this, this thing that Caesar Augustus has done, it's good news for you. So when Mark begins his story of Jesus, he doesn't call it a story. He doesn't, call, he doesn't say the beginning of the biography of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say the beginning of the documentary. There was no Netflix. He couldn't do the documentary of Jesus Christ. He says what? He says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what, see, Christianity, very different from all other world religions. Everything else is about what you have to do to get right with whatever higher power or God or being or whatever. Christianity says there's good news about what has been done for you. See, whether it's Islam, you have to follow the five, pulled, five pillars of Islam as, as best you can to please Allah. Or whether it's Buddha, follow the, the eightfold path of the Buddha and in this way you get right. Or whether you don't believe in God and you're secular. What, what is a secular religion? They have a mantra, and the mantra is this. Above all else, be true to yourself. And the infidels, the heretics in that religion, would be anyone who tells you not to be true to yourself. See, Either way, you have to do this, though. You have to be true to yourself. The gospel is very different. Whether you follow some other religion or whether you follow secular religion, the gospel is something that says it's not about what you do. The good news is here's what's been done. This is just an announcement. The gospel is not good advice. It's good news. This is what's been done. By who? By Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Christ um, just means Messiah. Messiah means Christ. Christ means Messiah. In fact, in some of your Bibles, the, the scripture, it may actually be translated the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Messiah. 
the Son of God. It just depends on whether you, your, your version picked the Greek or the Hebrew to bring it into the English. Christ just means Messiah, so he's Messiah. He's also the Son of God. And in this, uh, Mark is also doing something, I don't know, what's the literary technique? Foreshadowing. Because in the whole Gospel of Mark, it's all about, like, Jesus' mysterious identity. Little by little, people are starting to pick up on who this Jesus is. And they don't get it at first, right? And, and, and they're blind to this. But, but we're given at the outset, we're given the information. We're given insider information. He's, he's the Messiah. You're going to meet this guy, Jesus? He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. But the people in the story, they don't know that yet. That's why, by the way, we should, we should be easy on the disciples. You know how you'll, you'll be in church or Sunday school or you'll be reading the Bible or you'll hear a preacher. And they're often a little hard on the disciples. I mean, come on, he did a miracle. How could you not believe? Well, because we know stuff they don't know, right? We, we're told it's, he's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. They're having to, like, come to, it takes you a while. They're coming to terms with all this stuff. So we know. And, the, and the, the Gospel of Mark is 16 chapters. It's laid out as a drama in three acts, three scenes. Act one. In Galilee, Jesus is doing these healings and these teachings. People are like, who is this feller? He, he speaks with authority. We never heard. And some people are starting to get it, some aren't. Act 2, the road from Galilee to Jerusalem. Act 2 is on the way. As he makes his way to Jerusalem. And on the way to Jerusalem, he did this. And on the way, he met this person. And on the way, he did this healing. And Act 3 is in Jerusalem, his death, burial, and resurrection. And Mark is also signaling what's going to happen. 16 chapters, right? It takes half the book for somebody to realize he's Messiah. The first eight chapters before, some, before a human says, you're the Christ. Do you remember? Near the end of chapter 8, do you remember which apostle? It was none other than Peter. Jesus is asking him, uh, who do people say that I am? And they give response. He says, yeah, but who do you say that I am? Who am I really? And at the end of chapter 8, Peter looks at him and says, I know who you are. Thou art the Christ. It takes eight chapters to get somebody to say, you're the Messiah. And it takes another eight all the way to the end, uh, right around the end of chapter uh, 15, for somebody to look up and say, surely this man, it's not just Messiah, surely he was also, surely this man was the son of God. And it wasn't a Jewish follower, it wasn't an apostle, it was a pagan Roman centurion who finally announces what Mark is saying in the very first verse. Jesus is Messiah, he's the son of God. That's going to dawn slowly on the people throughout Mark. You get to see it right here at the outset. So that's the good news. This is the beginning of the gospel. This is the good news. <clears throat> good news needs an, an, an evangelist, a proclaimer of that good news. And that's where we meet John, the baptizer. Isaiah the prophet prophesies that this day of the Lord's going to come. God's going to come. And when the Holy One comes, he says, I'm going to send my messenger ahead of him to prepare the way of the Lord. And then boom, verse 4, John appeared. Baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. This business about all Jerusalem being called back. All Jerusalem, it's been 400 years since the last Old Testament prophet Malachi. There hadn't been a prophet in Israel in 400 years. And now this John, this wild man out in the wilderness shows up and he's drawing them back to repentance. And all, it says all the country of Judea, all Jerusalem, everybody's going out to him being baptized. Why? In John's day, there was only two reasons you'd be baptized. One is Gentile proselytes. In other words, a Gentile who wanted to convert to Judaism would do it. And then a... Um, a, a Jew who was ritually unclean would go through the waters of baptism. 
So the symbolism here is that uh, the nation, the, the people are saying we are unclean. We're humble enough to realize we're not okay, confessing their sins. And going back to, of all places, going back to the Jordan River, there's some symbolism there. Why? That's where it all began. When they came out of Egypt and God called them as a people, they had to what? To get to the promised land, they had to cross which river? They had to cross the Jordan River. Don't you see? God's calling his people back to where it all began. You know, if you're here this morning and you feel far from God, it might be a good thing to go back to where it all began for you. To maybe return to your first love. To go back to the place where God... You were, you were close to God. You remembered him. Return to your first love. Go back. I don't know what the River Jordan is in your life, but it might be time to go back to the Jordan River for you. Well, there's this excitement, and, and everybody's coming out, and John, as a preacher, verse 6, wild. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. Mark doesn't miss a thing. That's the, that's the garment of the Old Testament prophets. Elijah would wear that kind of thing. And here we've got a New Testament version. And he ate locusts and wild honey. He was keto, I believe they call that. It's, it's kosher. I looked it up. It is kosher. It's disgusting. But it's right there in Leviticus. You can have it. You can also have grasshoppers. But, but no carbs. And thus, <laughs> you can have carbs. And thus, the Messianic ex- expectations were through the roof. I mean, do you understand? This is Messiah fever. People are like, is God going to come? Because all the Jews, you got to remember, they're reading their Old Testament scrolls, right? If they had it on their phone. They're looking through. They're going, Isaiah says, the day of the Lord's coming. And here we are being beaten up by the Romans. Before that, it was the Greeks. Before that, it was the Persians. Before that, it was the Babylonians. Before that, it was the Assyrians. Before that, it was the Moabites. Before that, it was the Canaanites. Before that, it was the Egyptians. All we've known is oppression. So God, when are you going to come? And John shows up. In the wilderness, he says, get right, God's coming. Get right, the day of the Lord's coming. And people start like, like coming down and, and, and to the point where they start to think maybe JTB is, the, uh, John the Baptist, maybe he is the Messiah. So finally they ask him, like, are, like, dude, are you the one? Look at what he says in verse 7. And he preached, this was his message. No, 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 it's not about me. After me comes he who's mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. No, no, no. I've baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What's he saying? Y'all, John the Baptist is like the greatest MC that has ever lived. What is an MC's job at a concert, right? You pay big money to see this band. The MC's job is not to come out and perform. The MC's job is what? Y'all put your hands together, right? Get on your feet, right? It's Striper, or like whoever, not Striper, I don't know. But perhaps a band you would, I'd pay big money to see Striper. I'm getting distracted. The point is, you, you're right, the MC's job, get everybody on your feet, let's go, let's go, this band's coming. You bring them on stage, and then what does the MC do? Slips off into the, into the shadows in the background. So at one point, they came to John, and they were like, are you mad that Jesus is getting all the attention? That would be like going up to the MC after the concert and saying to the MC, you know this concert that everybody paid big money to see this band? Yeah. When that band came out, they like totally upstaged you. You would say, I don't think you understand the point of being an MC. John said it this way. That's the point. I must decrease. He must increase. I'm the one who goes before. I'm the messenger to prepare the way. The one's coming. I'm not even worthy to bend down and untie his sandal. He's going to baptize the Holy I know it's a cliche, but I think it bears saying 
John was announcing the judgment of God is coming. I know it's a cliche, but can I ask you? Right now, if you are absolutely certain that the judgment of God is very near, would it change the way you live in the short time you have left? If you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that you were gonna face the judgment of God in just a short time, would you amend the way you live? Would you go down to the river? Would you repent? Or would you take the alternative approach? Would you say, well, eat, drink, be merry, tomorrow we die, and I'm gonna indulge in everything I can in the time I have left? How would you react? Well, John the Baptist announces that when that God is coming. The problem is people don't know exactly what to expect because the Old Testament's a little unclear. Sometimes the Old Testament makes it sound like in the day of the Lord, this like man will come. Like Isaiah 53 says, this suffering servant and it's a human who serves the Lord. So we're expecting a human, a Messiah. But other times, It says that John will prepare the way of the Lord, like Isaiah 40, make straight the way of the Lord. And in the day of the Lord, it's like like God himself will come. So which is it? Are we expecting a man to come? Or are we expecting God? Like who are we waiting for? In the end, near the end of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 64, there's this great passage where the people are crying out, Isaiah cries out, Lord, rend the heavens and come down. God, man or God, whatever, just, just, just rip open the skies, rip open the heavens and come down because we are, we are covered in sin, we're covered in pain, there's so much injustice, there's so much that's wrong with the world. God, we need help, we can't save ourselves, we're sick of our sin, just rip open the heavens, would you, and come down. And then 400 years of silence. And then, and Mark does this, he like lays out little, it's like Mark has little trap doors. As you're walking along reading the gospel of Mark, and then suddenly he drops the bottom out. That's what he does in verse 9. Just like nonchalantly. Just sort of tosses it in there. <clears throat> you know, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. No big deal. It doesn't say Jesus had a big, ha- a big aura around him. It doesn't say Jesus had a halo, right? No, it says Jesus, he had no former appearance that we should be attracted to him. No, Jesus put on an old ball cap pulled it low. He put on a pair of sunglasses, right? There was something going around Judea, so he wore a mask. I don't know. know. Anyway, walked in, and what did he do? What did he do? He just kind of slips in with the crowd. He just starts walking out. Everybody else is going to get baptized. He just kind of walks with them. And it doesn't say, and everybody stood six feet back because Jesus had this, oh, this glorious glow about him, and everybody said, this guy is special. No, he just walks in. It doesn't say like everybody else went into the Jordan River, and he just kept tiptoeing across the water. No, and he went in the water like everybody else. There's, there's no way for me to fully capture what comes next. Here's Jesus, incognito, just shows up, and to say that what happens next is cataclysmic is an understatement. It's almost like you need to design a Bible where it's spring-loaded right in the middle of verse 10. A big boxing glove comes out of the Bible and punches you in the face. And while you're like, what I miss? What happened? He throws it in here right in the middle. And, and Jesus goes in and be baptized. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descends on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Isaiah 64 verse 1 says, God, if you would rip open the skies and come down. And that's exactly what happened in Mark 1.10. Prophecy made, prophecy fulfilled. 
The dove comes down in this booming voice, right? You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. So will it be a man? Yes. Will it be God himself? Yes. When Jesus came, he perfectly fulfills these ancient prophecies. He is the servant Messiah. He is also God himself. And the sky's ripped open. Dove descends. There's only four places. Bible trivia time. There's only, by my count, there's only four places in the Old Testament where um, uh, somebody can part the waters. Where the, ri- the, the river or the sea gets parted. Four times where the waters get parted. Can you name them? Think about it. Well, what's the most famous time where the sea got parted? That's right, Charlton Heston. That's number one. That is exactly right. When, when Moses parts, I know, I know all of these work through God's power, but Moses, there were two E's that parted the water. Do you remember the E's? Elijah and Elisha, he takes off his jacket and slaps it down and the waters part miraculously. The jo- uh, uh, Joshua parts the water because of the ark. So four times through the power of God, you see men part the waters in the river. There's only one place in the Bible where the man goes into the river and splits the sky. The heavens opened. We're seeing something that hasn't been seen since the beginning. And when I say beginning, I mean the very beginning. If you go all the way back to Genesis, you go all the way back to Genesis 1-1, what does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, and the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters and God spoke. Here you have in the first three verses of Genesis, you got God the Father, you got the spirit of God hovering over the waters, and you got the voice of God speaking. And Christians believe that the word of God represents the ultimate word of God, Jesus. That Jesus is the language God speaks when he wants to talk to human beings. He shows us what he's like. And here at the baptism, you have the same Three, you got God the Father, sky being ripped open. And when the rabbis translated Genesis 1-2, they didn't say the Spirit hovered over the waters. When the rabbis translated into Aramaic, the Targums, they said that the, in Genesis, way back in Genesis 1, it says the Spirit fluttered over the waters like a dove. And here you have the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. What's happening? Mark's saying Genesis 1 was creation. This is new creation. Now, <clears throat> Imagine what that, when Jesus looked up, okay, he came, he saw, when Jesus looked up and he saw and he heard, this is my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit, enveloped in God's love, filled with the Holy Spirit. Imagine what that did for him, knowing he was about to start his ministry. Remember, legend, uh, you know, history says he started his ministry about 30 years old. So, so whatever, late 20s, 30, whatever. But he knows he's about to go be opposed, be rejected. He's going to heal. He's going to teach. In the end, he's going to die on a cross and rise from the dead. He's going to face all this. Can you imagine what he needed to launch him into that ministry? You know, to launch these precious little girls into their life, we recognize part of the reason we dedicate them and we pray over them. Why? We recognize beautiful, life is beautiful and terrible, that there are great and glorious things that will happen. And there are Tragic things that will happen. So what do they need? What do you need to launch a three-year ministry of you, Jesus? What kind of rocket pad can launch that? Let me ask you this. What do you need to launch through your week? What do you, what do you need to get you through? In Jesus' hard times, what is the... He knew he was beloved of God, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's the fuel that got him through three years, those three years of ministry. 
These precious children need to know they're beloved of God. They can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, now let me ask you, what are you using right now to get you through the week? What do you, what do you think the fuel you need is to get you through the week? You know, it's like, uh, okay, I need, I, need, I need better diet, and if I have a better diet, then I can get through the week. You know what, I've got, um, I need more self-care. <laughs> if I have a few moments of self-care, then I get through the week. And I'm not saying you, you do need a good diet, you do need to take care of yourself, fine. I need, I need better advice, and if I can sit down with a blog, and I can get some, a TED Talk, and I can get some advice, that'll get me through the week. Some of you are like, if you would take all my children for a week, I could get through the week, right? Some people say, I forget all the advice, just give me money. If I had financial peace, then I could get through the week. Everybody's looking for what will get you through the week. Can I suggest to you, you need to hear exactly what Jesus heard to launch you through your ministry this week, that you're the beloved child of God. You don't need to just hear that. You need to hear it. You know the difference? It's one thing to say, yeah, God loves me. To know that you know that you know that God loves you. And you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's it. We're looking for all these other things. You, you need to hear that. Have you heard that? Are you living into that? Here's what this has to do with you. Jesus came. Write this down. Jesus came to offer to us what he has enjoyed for all eternity. See, from all eternity past, he has known as part of the Trinity, Christians believe God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. That he has been wrapped up in this, and if you wouldn't think me irreligious, this, this dance for all eternity where one is around the world. See, when, when you're filled with pride and you demand that everybody orbits around you, you there can't be a dance because everybody demands they orbit around you. But in dancing, you orbit around the other. And that's what the whole, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one's glorifying the other and one's building the other up and one's showing love to the other in this, this dance. He's enjoyed that, knowing he's beloved of God and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He has enjoyed that since eternity past and he wants you to have it too. It, listen, if you don't get this, it, listen to me, if you don't get this, if you don't know that you are, if you don't know that you know that you know that you are who he says you are, if you don't know you are the beloved of God and be filled with the Holy Spirit, you will always have to steal your approval from some other source. It won't stop. It'll be a vicious cycle. If you don't know that you are beloved of God and filled with the Holy Spirit, you will have to steal your approval. You'll have to get your approval from work. Good luck with that. You'll have to get your approval from what your family thinks of you. Good luck with that. You have to get your approval from your spouse. If you don't know your beloved God, you have to get it from your spouse. That's probably a better place than others, but even that too, that well will run dry. You're gonna have to find somebody to say, in you I'm well pleased. If you can't feel that from your heavenly father, you're always gonna be on a mission to get that from somewhere else, either from your self-worth or your net worth. You're looking for somebody to look at you and say, you are my child and I'm not mad at you. I'm pleased with you. Will you get that from God? You need that. You need that. Your week is at stake. Your life is at stake. To live out of that reality. And Jesus came to offer to us what he's enjoyed for all eternity. Now in closing, how? <sighs> to, be able to, to be able to hear God say, without qualification or anything, but to be able to hear God say, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. You. To hear God say that, in you I'm well pleased. Most of us, when we think about God, well, maybe he's mad at me, maybe he's kind of pleased. No, no, no. You are my beloved child. In you I'm well pleased. How can God say that to us? If we know ourselves, we, we don't always do pleasing things. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, come on, look, 
We don't bring a lot to the table. And when we do bring a lot to the table, we get all proud and arrogant about all we brought to the table. Which we, You know what I'm saying? We're twisted, messed up. So how can God, how can I say that Jesus came to do this? Because he's a champion. Because he conquered. Because, go back to the very first verse, this is a gospel. This is good news. This is not good advice. And let me share with you, in closing, the good news. Right after his baptism, verse 12. This is where we finish up. We'll get ready for next week. A little teaser for next week. Verses 12 and 13. <clears throat> Here's how it happened. It says, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. While Jesus' hair is still dripping wet from his baptism, Spirit says, okay, now let's roll. And drove him out. It doesn't say he led him gently into the wilderness. He drove him. The very same God who said, who taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, straight up led them in, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, now look, I, I, hope, um, um, I, I hope that you have taken the step of believer's baptism, water baptism, immersion. In other words, um, we believe the Bible teaches first a person is a believer to follow the example of Jesus Christ, right? He had faith, then he demonstrated publicly through the waters of baptism. And in the same way, go, the Bible says, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we did a dedication today. Some churches baptize those infants, and that's their baptism. And I don't mean to denigrate any other church tradition. I just mean that if you were baptized an infant, that was very special for your parents, but you probably don't remember it. What was your parents saying? Your parents were saying, I hope one day this kid takes on my faith. Well, to me, believer's baptism is the perfect way to say, you shouldn't be ashamed if you were baptized as a child and now you're being baptized as an adult. Not at all. You should say, look, Ma, it happened. <laughs> look, Dad, I mean, your prayers were that I would be raised in the faith. And if anything, this confirms. I think it's wonderful if you're baptized as an infant to be baptized as a believer's baptism. It's great. Here's my point with all that. Here's my point. If you haven't yet had that happen or if you had, I hope when you get baptized, at least you get a reception and some cookies and punch. You know, I hope that there's a little celebration. Here, Jesus is still dripping wet from the baptism and the Spirit says, let's go, let's go. We're going to the wilderness. Be tempted by the devil. Like, what? I mean, at least have a reception. I mean, his, his, his mom and dad weren't there. Well, I mean, sorry, his dad was there at his baptism. But, you know, drives him out. To what? 40 days showdown in the desert. Look at verse 13. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. Then what happened, Mark? Nothing. Mark moves on. That's all you get. You gotta love Mark. But we wanna know what happened in the wilderness. Well, for that, you're gonna have to read Matthew. This is all you get with Mark. Isn't it great? All Mark says is, showdown in the desert. Well, who won? <laughs> Next verse. I mean, he just moves on. Here it is. He was in the wilderness, 40 days, tempted by Satan with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering. All Mark says happened is this. Right? All Mark says, we got a showdown. And in one corner is Jesus, and his angels are ministering to him. Cut me, Gabriel. <laughs> In the other corner is Satan, and his demons are ministering to him, and we fix it and go 40 rounds. What happens? We don't know. I mean, Matthew, you get all this extra detail. You get all this stuff. With Mark, he's like, there was a showdown in the wilderness. There were wild animals and ministering angels. 
Here's one thing I know. Satan meets Jesus in the wilderness and thinks, now this one, this is going to be a layup. This is going to be a cakewalk. Why? Because I did this before. I already did this with the first son of God. They called him Adam. And the score right now, I'm batting a thousand. It's Satan one, God zero. Because the first time we did this little showdown, all the deck, Satan would say, all the deck was stacked against me. I had no advantages, and Adam had all the advantages. And here I'm supposed to tempt this guy. I'm supposed to tempt the guy who literally lives in a garden called paradise. How am I going to tempt him? He has everything. How are you going to tempt a guy that lives in paradise? What am I going to tempt him with? With like, oh, I'm going to get him to steal because he's hungry. If Adam is hungry, he just reaches out and eats the most delicious fruit ever known to man anytime he wants to. How am I going to tempt him? How am I going to tempt him with, with, with fear? It's not like he's in the wild animals. In Eden, God gave him dominion over the animals. How am I going to tempt him with fear? He's sitting there like, hey, little tiger. Hey, porpoise. Or Not that porpoises are scary. But you know, he didn't, it's tame, right? How am I going to tempt Adam with lust? There's only one woman, right? And it's his wife. Everybody with me? So Satan has no advantages. And he tempted Adam and Eve to be their own Lord. So now... Now, you're going to come at me with a man in the wilderness? This is going to be easy. Satan's gotten very arrogant over these years. He's been the boss of this house. He has been, listen to my words carefully, he's been the strong man in this house. And he's been running this show on planet Earth. And who can blame him? Who can blame him for being arrogant? Caesar's? Come and go. Caesars can't stop him. Priests and preachers and pastors, they come and go. They haven't been able to stop him. And he's running roughshod over people. And he's got people demon-possessed. And he's got, he's, he is the strong man in this house. And now, you're going to send me a man in the wilderness? Pfft. I bet he gets hungry after 40 days. And I'm going to tempt him to turn these stones into bread. Look at these wild animals. I bet he gets scared. There's going to be a lot of lonely nights those 40 days. And when he gets scared, I'm going I'm to tempt him to throw himself off the temple and make sure God will catch him. Get him to doubt God. I'll get him to shortcut. I'll tell him you can have all these kingdoms. Just bow down and worship me. This one's going to be easy. Well, we don't know exactly what happened in that showdown. <clears throat> but for the rest of the gospel of Mark, guess who never again makes a personal appearance? His name gets mentioned. Peter gets called him once. But Satan never again makes a personal appearance in the Gospel of Mark. So whatever went down, the demons show up. And what are the demons marked by? What are the demons? It's funny. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, the humans can never seem to figure out who Jesus is. But the demons know exactly who he is, and they're marked by one emotion. Throughout the rest of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus shows up and they're marked by one emotion, and that's fear. Every time Jesus shows up, the demons are like, uh, uh, please, uh, please, don't, please don't kill us, Jesus. Let us go into this herd of pigs. Please don't torture us. We know who you are. Why? Because the demons saw what was done to their big boss man, Satan. And they're scared. And Jesus tells us, I think he tells us, Mark tells us in Mark 3 what happened. I think, I think, because he's going around and he's casting out demons. And some people say, how's he able to do this? I think he refers back to this showdown in the desert. He says in Mark 3, 27, he says, no one 
can plunder the house of a strong man, take all his goods, unless he first goes into that house and he binds that strong man. And then when he binds the strong man, he's able to plunder the strong man's house. I think our champion, Jesus Christ, at that showdown in the wilderness, bound the strong man, Satan. And then Jesus starts walking through his ministry, plundering Satan's house. And he's taking back for God all that rightfully belonged to God in the first place. There's somebody demon-possessed? Not anymore. I'm here. Strong man's bound. Sorry. He goes through and he just starts, as we say down south, eating Satan's lunch. Okay, maybe we don't say that. Thought we said that. Whatever. He goes in and he plunders the goods of the house, right? He's going, oh, you're sick? Not anymore. Oh, Satan wanted to give you this disease? Not anymore. You're healed. Oh, you're dead? Now you're alive. He goes through and he plunders the house of the strong man. Why? Because that champion in that showdown in the desert won for you and for me something we could not get for ourselves. That's why it is a gospel. That's why it's a royal announcement. That's why the gospel starts, Mark 1, with the sky being ripped open and Jesus on the loose, plundering the house of the strong man, healing and restoring and ministering and binding and it ends, the gospel ends with the veil of the temple being ripped and Jesus still on the loose, alive from an empty tomb. The gospel of Mark is all about Jesus Christ on the loose and the reason we're going through it as a church is because Jesus Christ is still on the loose today. You ready for Mark? Come back next week and let's continue. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are desperate to hear, whether we know it or not, we are desperate to hear that we are the beloved children of our Heavenly Father and that you are well pleased with us. And Jesus, you went to the cross to get this message to us, that it is a gospel, it is a royal announcement. It's not good advice, there's nothing anyone has to do right here, but receive this good news. So God, grant us the good sense to receive what you died to give us. Let us hear with fresh ears that we are the beloved of God and fill us with your Holy Spirit. If there's somebody here who's been away from you for a long time, let the words of Mark drive the good news of the gospel deeper into them than ever before and let them return to their first love. Go back to the Jordan River where it all started. If there's, if there's, a, if there's someone who's never received you, let today be the day. And if there's a Christian who's floundering out there on... on lacking any sort of confidence and self-worth, let them know today they're the beloved of you and they can be filled with the Holy Spirit. You died to give us that. Let us have the good sense to receive it. We pray and ask that, oh God. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna have a time of response and that time of response is so simple. That's just what it is. It's a time for you to respond. You've heard the word of God. We've sung his praises. We've seen this beautiful uh, dedication, these beautiful families. What is all this meant to do? Allow us to respond. If you've never received Jesus, if you're watching this online right now and you've never received Jesus, let today be that day so that you can hear you are the beloved of God, filled with the Holy Spirit. If you are a believer, let today be the day where you return to him. If you want to pray, Pastor Scott will be here to receive any who come. You just come forward, pray with Pastor Scott or set up a time later to meet. Hey, we got questions, that's fine. You want to kneel down at the altar and pray, that's fine. If you want to pray right where you are, you just respond, oh, respond to what Jesus, who's on the loose right now, is speaking to you in this place. Chuck, you lead us. There's nothing worth more that can never come close. Nothing can compare 
Tasted and seen of the sweetest of loves, where my heart becomes free and my shame is undone. Your presence. face towards you and give you peace. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.